1: Very warm welcome. You're listening to Radio Maria and this is as I was saying with Father Ewan Mali. Good morning, Father. Good morning.
2: Well, so well, lovely to happy have you to be here. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah I'm very happy to be here. And um, I I understand that today you're going to be continuing um walking through the psalms and focusing on psalm 104. Is that right?
2: That's right. 104. It's quite a long psalm, but uh not the longest in the term, but quite long, so I should fill up the time quite easily. And it's about creation in a certain way, so which I'll speak about. It's often called a creation psalm,
1: but that's right. And last week we were also <laughs> looking at other creation psalms. Um, yeah, in, in,
2: in different respects, uh, the shorter, but also uh, the other creation psalms last week, as I was saying, were really more aware of the human being. Doing the, the praising of creation, whereas this one is more directly to God. That's mm-hmm. one difference. Which one of the things we want to follow about when you, whenever we speak or say anything, it's it's always us that's speaking. And sometimes we think about what we're saying. Sometimes we think about the fact that we are saying it, and that shows up in the Psalms quite often. So ways of reading the Psalms. Wow. But just a little prayer to I'll start. With a prayer to the Father. Then. Please do. Yes. Okay. Heavenly Father, on this day we celebrate the priesthood of Jesus Christ, your Son. The priesthood that gathers all your creation into his hands and offers it back to you. So as we consider the roots of Christ's human awareness, all that he was taught as a child, the young man, his psalms, his scriptures, may we too be inspired by these scriptures to offer to you all that you have made. This psalm itself is... A creation psalm in terms of the Bible, as the Bible thinks of creation. And to explain what I mean by the Bible's attitude to creation, we must consider creation in terms of modern theology. By modern, I mean 13th century, of course, Thomas Aquinas. And for Thomas Aquinas, creation is more to do with the giving of being, what it means for something to exist and to show that it existence in itself is a gift. And some people might say, well, Thomas Aquinas just ignores the Bible, but that isn't true at all. It's more that Thomas takes from the Bible the idea of being and from a source which might seem unexpected. Rather than the creation psalms or hymns of creation, he goes to the story of Moses and the burning bush. Because there, Moses meets God and when he says to God, who shall I say to the children of Israel when they ask me, what is your name? He says, well, my name is I Am, that I am. And that's where Thomas takes his interest in the idea of being, existence. It's very powerful and very important. The creation in the ancient world could mean something rather different. Creation was more connected with the idea of shaping what already existed. Uh, Some people think that the the Hebrew mind also thought that God was simply shaping what already existed. And some of the language might say that, but I don't think that's ever been shown or proven. And the important thing for the Hebrew mind is what you can see and touch and hear. No matter how great, no matter how beautiful or wonderful or frightening, because creation is also frightening and appalling at times, because it's greater than a, as little human beings struggling to survive in this earth. No matter what, it's the thing above it that matters what you cannot see, which is God. And that's important when we understand the psalm. And then later I'll explain why there is, unusually for the Bible, an alternative to the psalm outside the Bible, which I shall speak about later. So begin by saying something of the psalm. I'll read a little bit of it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers in the water, he makes the clouds his chariot, he rides in the winds, wings of the wind, he makes his messengers wind, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation, that he should never be moved. So that's the beginning of this psalm, it's the beginning about creation. Creation is here seen as, in some ways, certainly shaping the world, making it work. makes it safe at its foundations. The foundations should never be moved. Of course, there are earthquakes, but what the psalmist is saying, that, that these foundations may be shaken, but that's not the same as being destroyed. You might remember last week I was saying, uh, Psalm 83 talked about foundations that of the earth being shaken, but not shaken is not the same as moving. Although it seems like he's simply discussing creation as something kept in order by God, there's also a sense of transcendence. He makes the clouds his chariot, not because he needs them, but because he chooses to do it that way. The clouds are the symbol of his presence. He rides in the wings of the wind, not because he needs the wind, but because the wind is at his disposal. He makes his messenger's winds, his ministers, a flaming fire. And the language is slightly different from the pagan idea, but importantly different, crucially different. These things, all the things the psalmist sees, belong to God. And he chooses them not because he needs them, but because he chooses to to make it expressions of his being. The verse 7 says, At your rebuke they fled, the sound of your thunder they took to flight. This is the means of transcendence of power. It might seem that everything is random or it might seem that we can understand things in terms of scientific measures, but scientists measure things. They don't control them. And experts in volcanoes or earthquakes or hurricanes are rather better at describing these things and controlling them. Most they can do is warn you when it's going to happen. And even if we did take control, there's still space itself. Reality is vast and we are small. No, we merely observe and perhaps adapt where we can, but we do not control very much. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, that they might not again cover the air. You make springs gush forth in the wind valleys. They flow between the hills. You give drinks to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. So... The first thing about this psalm is that it's about God's control, about God's power. But then it's also about the fact that we live in this reality. You'll find that emerging as the psalm goes on, we are not simply looking at an object of art, which is something that we are outside of. The museum, you look at the painting, but remember, for reality, we are in the painting. Paintings themselves are merely expressing that fact. We are inside of this. And inside of it, we live our lives. So, I'm going to verse 14, jumping a little bit. You cross the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. That he may bring forth food from the and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. And there you see human beings, but unlike the previous psalms, as I was saying last week, which were about the psalmist's awareness of what creation means for him. When I see the heavens, the work of your hands, I say, what is mine? Here it's more to do with the fact that human beings are inside of that creation. And working in that creation, they are themselves part of it, but they are an active part but being active doesn't mean to say that they're aware that there's God's creation. There are, pagans are aware of power beyond them. Uh, they're aware that uh, there are forces which they tend to personify as governing the different parts of the earth. But also, it's the fact that human beings tend to just carry on in life. A great deal of indifference to religion is because we just keep too busy and don't think about the reality about us. I think at least the pagans are wiser. They know that they don't control everything. And it's why pagans would pray to gods. They'd pray for very concrete things. They'd pray for a good harvest, for safety, victory in war. They might pray for healing, but... There's not a lot of that in the ancient world. There are some, like the God of Healing, Ascetis but mostly they, they pray for their life to be well, prosperous and successful. And the psalmist might seem to be saying no different thing. But you notice he says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Uh, and the word to cultivate is actually a rather specific translation. More generally, it means to serve. And that's quite an important word in Hebrew thought because that's what God did when he created Adam. He created him to serve the land. Same word is used to represent servants. It's used to represent slaves. used to represent people serving the land itself because, in a way, we are governed by the land. Adam, of course, before the fall, the land that was easy, but afterwards it's a hard land, it says by the sweat of your brow, so you earn the bread you eat. It becomes tough. But whether it's easy or difficult, whether it was something where everything just happens for us, or where it is as it is now, a life of struggle, of constant effort, is still serving God. Because what God made us to serve this land. You caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. He might bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Another thing you also notice is that we don't just work to live, we don't just work to survive, we also work to make life meaningful and joyful. So the wine that makes man's heart glad. Now, this is a contentious passage. People use that to excuse drinking too much. On the other hand, some forms of Christianity find it rather embarrassing that the Bible should be so enthusiastic about wine. But it's all about moderation. But it's also true that whether we drink or do anything, we always seek something more than just living. We look for joy. We look for some sense of life as being worthwhile be more than just survival. And the psalmist is thinking of that. His whole, the whole psalm itself is about the wonder of life, the joy of life. And that won't turn us away from God, but rather will turn us to God, because those sense of community that we get, those sense of happy moments with friends and family, that's very necessary for those who want to be happy with God. Even the most austere religious celebrate at times. There are times when we simply enjoy the fact that God is with us. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon he planted. Then the psalm moves to a different thing. It starts to talk about the various aspects of creation in itself the animals, the birds, the trees. Then it comes back to verse 23, it comes back to this fact that human beings are in that creation working. Man goes out to work, his work, and to his labor until the evening. And then back to discussing all the things that God has made. Lord, to manifold are your works and wisdom, you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is a sea, great and wide, which teens with creatures, innumerable living things, both small and great. The and in which you fall to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. You give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. That actually is uh, the way we say grace in the Dominican order every day at dinner, we say, you open wide your hand and satisfy the hunger of every living thing. That little psalm. So we actually say this psalm every day for dinner I should be saying it today uh, hopefully if someone's cooking for us today at one o'clock so 11.30 I think a break for a song and after that uh, I'd like to talk about the larger question of human beings and animals Bless the Lord oh my soul oh Lord my God You are close splendor and majesty covering yourself with light. He stretched out
3: the heavens like a tin, lays the beams of his chambers on the waters and then makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the Above the mountains But at your rebuke At the sound of your thunder The mountains they rose And the valleys sank under To the very place That you appointed for them So they may never Cover the earth again Your works so wise you made them all And the earth is full of your creatures sea, the sea teeming with life Animals both great and small And they all, yes they all Everyone looks to you You send forth a stream. his gladness oil to make his face shine We loves
2: to you. Okay, well, back again. As I was saying earlier, the, the Psalm 104 is a creation psalm, but not in the theological term of existence as such, although that is implied. It's a psalm which looks at all the aspects of creation. It sees God is governing them, govern those, those psalms that are under God's will. But they're also psalm, it's a psalm about God maintaining This life. And as such, it might not seem very different from pagan psalms. And here we have a question, because there is actually a pagan hymn, which might seem very like this psalm. And that's the hymn attributed to the pharaoh Akhenaton in ancient Egypt, was found in the Tel Amarna. Tel is a, a mound. Amarna, they found a copy of this. This psalm, it seems very similar. There are some big differences, though. The psalm Akhenaten describes creation, but it sees it as the work of the sun. Akhenaten seemed to worship the sun rather than God as such. It's a sort of monotheism because it's one God, but there's a difference in worshipping one God while thinking that there are lots of gods or saying that there is only one God. And also the sun is something you can see. And as such... It's less than the God of Israel who you cannot see, who reveals himself in different ways, reveals himself in creation and also in apparitions. This is the sun that, that can be seen. Now, it's true, actually, the sun is a constant source of life on earth. That's a scientific fact, but it didn't create the earth. And the sun and the earth themselves are part of creation. The other difference with the sun as opposed to the idea of God as do creator, I the Lord in Psalm 104, is the sun clearly is part of creation. It's not the whole of creation. So when there is darkness in the, the hymn of Akhenaton, Akhenaten, it's because the sun has gone away. So darkness is an alternative to the sun. And that's rather different from the psalm that we have, because God is in control of the night as well. Can find the, the text for that. You make darkness, it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. And that's after the verse he made the sun moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. But with, with the Psalm 104, it's not because the sun is a limited being, and therefore when the sun goes away, there's darkness, even though that is, of course, what why there is darkness. Both the sun and the darkness, both the day and the night, are under God's control. So the sun obeys God. So that's very different from Akhenaten. And those people who say that Akhenaten is virtually a believer in God are simply missing that point. So two, as- two aspects would make it different. One is it's the sun, not God. Secondly, is that the sun itself is only part of creation, even in Akhenaten's hymn, because the sun goes away, something else comes darkness. The third difference is that the psalmist, 104, does not worship anything he sees, including the sun. The sun itself is not worshipped, doesn't raise his arm. Still, it's very interesting to know that there is indeed other forms of psalms and hymns in the ancient world. The psalms are not absolutely different from the rest of the world. They are similar, but being similar, they're also highlighting the difference. And you'll find this all through the Old Testament. Whenever we do find aspects of similar writings outside of the Old Testament, you always see that the Old Testament is actually treating these things not as sources of information, but rather critiquing them, saying, this isn't quite right. And it changes things quite radically. So the Genesis story of the flood, well, in the original version, or another version, the older version, the flood happens because one of the gods' Baal, gets drunk and accidentally opens the windows of the heavens. And the psalm takes this comic story, which is a pagan idea that you know, the gods are yeah, they're just big human beings and they're not actually any better than us, just more powerful and more dangerous. And the psalm says, no, when there's a flood, it's because of God's justice and God had a purpose here. God doesn't get drunk. God doesn't do things by accident. God has a plan and everything is in his control. So in the same way, you see that just as Genesis is actually critiquing the world around them, so the psalm is also critiquing creation psalms of the pagans, because the creation psalms of the pagans worship aspects of creation, whereas the psalm looks beyond and above that, looking for something greater. So there's one aspect I'd also like to talk about in Psalm 104, which is This whole idea of how we fit within that creation. And here it's a little complicated. One of the great constant refrains of the Old Testament generally is the fact that human beings are among the animals. They are one living being among other living beings. All the living beings are in some way connected to humanity. With the Genesis story, it's very simple. Adam names all the animals none of the animals are equal to him, none can be an opposite to him. That's why God creates Eve from the River of Adam. The story is not really about humanity, but about the fact animals are not equal to human beings. But they're a very big reality. You can't be unaware of them. We moderns who live in cities might ignore animals most of the time, they might think that they're just peripheral things, but no farmer could do that, no one that least in the countryside, you can really do that. In the, particularly in the desert lands of Israel, where there are some fertile lands, but some desert, and also where Israel itself is somewhat trapped between the sea and the desert. That's the geography of Israel. That is most simple. They have to be aware of the other animals. There are different ways in which animals connect to human beings. And here some 104 is more aware of the which well, obviously the the levels of connection. Think about human beings. There are animals which are tame, which you might call pets. I'm not sure there are any concept of pets in the Old Testament, but they're very aware that some animals tend to just inhabit the human world, most famously dogs. There's a theory that dogs cultivated human beings rather than the way they just decided that they could get food that they hung around human beings and after a while, people get used to it. You go to Istanbul, where there's uh, an Islamic view that you should protect dogs. They're actually, dogs are allowed to sleep in the streets, but they all have a, a mark in the ear because they check them for disease. These are big dogs, and they're sleeping in the the City. So that's the tame animals, which are tame in the sense of present. There's the animals which you might call domesticated, meaning farm animals, the animals that you use most famous of course, is sheep. And sheep have been such a powerful metaphor and image for us of how uh, human beings react with animals in the same way God is concerned for his sheep. He is a great shepherd. And Christ is a great shepherd. Then there are the animals which are relevant to human beings in terms that we eat them, but they're also semi-independent, or quite independent somewhere. That's the fish. Or the birds in the air if you catch birds. Birds of the air particularly, most of the birds of the air in the, the dietary rules couldn't be eaten, but particularly vultures and animals which didn't really know their place. There's something the uh, vulture is a bird of the air, but it eats food on the land, the dead carrion. So as you say, you've got levels. And then there's the fourth level, which are the animals which are just wild and apart. Now, one of those might be one of the animals referred to in the psalm as the wild asses. The wild asses it refers to. It probably just means these are animals of outside in the desert. They're a long way away. We don't domesticate them. We don't use them. But even those people, even those animals rather, not people, are protected by God. Um, I have to find a quote here are uh, it, wild animals? Yeah, it's called wild donkeys in this translation. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides, the birds of the heaven dwell, they sing among the branches. So the psalmist is saying, well, even if these aren't directly relevant to us, these animals, even though they're distant animals out in the, the non-human parts of the creation, God still cares for them. They're part of God's care. God cares for everything. All of this is in his concern. And then we come to one last, qual- uh, well, should we say, one last category of animals, which you might call the scary animals. They seem partly mythological, in the sense that there are great animals outside which are scary, like Leviathan, in the sense of sea, or Behemoth, which sometimes means a sort of great beast in the desert, although well, sometimes they use the word to describe closer animals. But it's curious that this psalm describes Leviathan in terms of joy. Leviathan is in this psalm. It says, Leviathan, there goes the ships in Leviathan, which you form to play in it, literally to laugh in it. That's unusual. Leviathan at times seems like a dangerous monster. In other parts of the Old Testament, we hear Leviathan is seen as just enjoying being, being whatever Leviathan is call it a whale, but there is a word that more closely means whale in the Old Testament. And sometimes Leviathan seems more like a symbol for the sea itself. The point is, the human being is within this great, complex reality. But no matter how complex it is, no matter how many different relationships human beings have to this reality, it's all God's reality. He controls it. It belongs to him. Which is the point, the single most important point, the psalm is trying to make. So, that should sort be of a break for music now. Do you think? So as I was saying in the previous talk, still concentrating on the Psalm 104, a psalm about creation, about God's glory, I was saying that it's also about the complexity of society, the complexity of nature itself. Human beings live within concentric circles of animal life. There's the tame animals, very close to them. There's the domesticated animals that they use. There's the animals that they hunt, search for, which is further out. They have more freedom, the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, but they're still subject to human beings. There's the animals which are completely independent, in a sense, wild, like the well, more like mythology, the Leviathan of the sea, the behemoth of the land. A bit like dragons, the idea that there are powerful beasts outside. But the psalmist has a very clear and simple view that all of this is under God, and God cares for all of this. All of this belongs to God. We human beings, applying to the modern time, are responsible for creation much more than in the time of the psalmist. We have more power, we have more ability, and we also do more destructive things, therefore we have to be more careful of all of creation. But we shouldn't delude ourselves that we can simply control it by sheer energy and power. We are weak, we are limited. And that's something else that the psalm brings to us. I might say a little interlude that I once had to do a retreat where all I had to do all day, all I was allowed to do, was read a translation of this psalm 104. So uh, a whole day just reading one psalm, walking around the grounds of our religious house in Ireland, uh, it was quite demanding. At one point I got so bored I climbed a tree but the tree was a rather fine tree. But then I noticed that there was something wrong with the bark. So when the retreat finished, I pointed this out to people. I said, that tree seems to be going wrong. And they called in a tree surgeon I heard later. And he said, oh, you're right enough. Well, we can fix that. So they saved the tree. So some 104 did at least one thing in my life that managed to save a tree in uh, County down in Ireland. So in a way, that's the Sam living through me, you know, We care for creation. It's part of our life. Inevitably, we care because there's no one else. And God has put the world in our hands. We must be responsible. Nonetheless, we are not in charge, not wholly in charge. We always depend on God. That's why the psalm itself takes a turn that some people might think is a bit sinister, They all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. So far, so good. Then there's a twist. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Then it says, when you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. You might know that in the prayer we often say, send forth your spirit and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Different translation. The point here is that, of course, there is death. What does death mean? Well, death means that God withdraws something of the life that he gives us. Not just us, of course, but all creation. Sorry, all creation, all the animals, all the vegetation. All of this depends on God. That's why we call the spirit in the creed the Lord and the giver of life. Spirit means breath, means wind. And, well, it's obviously only certain animals that need to breathe, like we human beings, mammals, snakes. It's still extended as a metaphor for the fact that we are given life and we depend on every, every breath of air we can take. And you might say, well, do human beings understand the the need for air? Well, they could drown, or they could be buried in an earthquake, or you could choke. So yes, they're very aware that you need breath. The breath's a symbol of our dependence on God for life, and also a practical thing. But the psalmist isn't saying that God is just creating us for a moment we have a sense of a greater thing in God. And so the psalmist goes on, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, it touches the mountains and the smoke. God's presence might seem frightening, destructive. Touching the mountain and smoke, obviously reminds us of Mount Sinai, where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And the psalmist also says that even an earthquake can be a sign of the presence of God, at least a symbol of the sign of the presence of God. And so we shouldn't praise God for creating the earth, for sustaining us, and then expect that he will always do it the way we think he should do it. There will be struggles. There will be danger. And we might also consider that, and this is, really the age of the Old Testament rather than the New, we might consider that if we do wrong, this may have effects on the earth around us. It's very dangerous to say that an earthquake is God's punishment, because very often the innocent suffer in earthquakes. But we should be aware that we are always dependent on God. It's not a safe world. We don't live in a safe world. But we must trust. That's why the psalmist saying goes on, verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing... Praise to my God, while I have being. And here, the psalmist is becoming aware of himself, rather like the psalms I spoke about last week. But here he's simply saying, well, while I live, while I am here, this is what I will do. I will sing to God, I will give praise to God. The Hebrew is literally, in my life. That's the first one, as long as I live in the second bit, is more, in my life. Being there, my continuance, my—you could almost say—I want to be very little in my againness, because again, again, the word can mean again and again, again. Living while I have breath, while I have days to live, I will praise God. And it ends with uh, a warning. Therefore, it says, let the sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. That's one translation not necessarily the the right translation. Um, It might mean simply the sinners will be consumed from the earth, the wicked be no more. It's not prophesying destruction here, although destruction comes, but just simply saying that if we want to be fair, then we shouldn't expect sinners to live. But as I say, this is the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. We live in the age of mercy. We have the time when there's a chance for forgiveness to be shared. We have to go beyond simply what seems like human reason, pure justice. We have mercy, which is a greater thing. And so, we don't want the sinners to be consumed from the earth. We want the sinners to stop sinning. We want the wicked to be converted. We want us all to share. And we are, after all, all sharing in sin. We're all prone to injustice. So I say that's why the Psalms, and I said this in my first talk, the Psalms aren't just things which only have their meaning in Christ, but they find a fuller meaning in Christ, which doesn't dispense with the older meaning, but rather shows that the older meaning is part of a greater truth. And so we come to the very last verse of the, the Psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. Now, that's the last verse, but it's also, if you were listening and have a good memory, the first verse, or at least the first few words, bless the Lord, O my soul. It's quite common for um, psalms, well, that's not, not very common, but it does happen that the psalm often begins and ends with the same verse, the same lines. But you remember that if you read a psalm, after you've read the psalm, you say the same words, but now they have a fuller meaning. Begins with, bless the Lord, praise his name. Then the whole psalm talks of creation. It leads us into this grasp of the whole of the reality of the life we, we live in. It's not a complete grasp, but it manages to cover all the parts of the earth. And then we say once again, bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. Once again, we say the same words, but with a fuller meaning. That's the point of the repetition. It's not just saying something again. It's saying it again, but now it means a bit more. And that's how it works. And it's also why we uh, can say the psalms over and over again, because it builds up meaning, because our life develops, our life has more challenges, sometimes more joy, sometimes we see unexpected success, often we see unexpected failure. Every time we turn to the psalm, it means a bit more. That's true of all writing, of course, true of poetry. You can read the same poem over and, over and again. But then many poems are themselves very influenced by the Psalms. The Psalms, however, are more consciously aware of the repetition. And that's what it goes back to. While I live, I will praise the Lord. But, And I said, if you want to be literal in my againness, I will, I will praise the Lord. I will sing. Because again and again we say the same words, but they mean more each time. And it should be said that sometimes they seem to mean less because we, we lose our enthusiasm, and we get bored. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their, their strength. Says so another Psalm. So we read the Psalms again, and we say the same words again, and it always means something more. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise His very being. So end there.
1: And say, see you in a week's time, I hope. Thank you so much, uh, Father Ewan. It's been wonderful. And um, yes, we'll see you next week, same time. And uh, you said you'll be doing Psalm 105.
2: Yes, yeah, Psalm 105 is a, a, about the history
1: of Israel. Wonderful. We yeah. look forward to it. Yeah, okay. So, thank you next right. Bye then. God bless.
0: This was a Radio Maria podcast. If you enjoyed it, do please click like and subscribe on your podcast provider or leave us a review. Every bit of feedback helps increase our visibility and allows us to reach more people with the message of Christ's saving truth. And if you don't already, you can listen to Radio Maria live either online or on DAB in selected regions of the UK. We'd love for you to call in live and be part of the conversation. See our website, radiomariaengland.uk, for more details and a full schedule of programmes. And do please consider making a donation so that we can keep making more programmes like this. We are completely dependent upon the generosity of our listeners.